Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Please pray with me as we continue our worship. Father, what a good and what a blessed reminder to step back and ask ourselves who or what is our portion. And if we are your people, you are our portion. Though often we forget that, though often we neglect that, though often we're distracted from that truth. But if you are our portion, then we are not our portion. And no person is our portion, and no accomplishment is our portion. No recognition or achievement or obtainment is our portion. And Father, I I pray that even as we are drawing near the close of this section in which the writer really sets before us and before his readers first and foremost this great panoramic view of of the faithful throughout the ages and what it looked like that they walked before you with you being their portion i pray that we would draw encouragement that it wouldn't be simply words or concepts, theological constructs that pass before our eyes or before our minds, but that we would truly be ministered to and enriched, encouraged, edified, strengthened for our own race by those who have gone before. The cloud of witnesses who followed you who served you, who saw dimly the great purpose of their God that would culminate in Jesus the Messiah. And yet, though they did not receive what was promised, they held tightly to that promise. They believed you for it, and they committed their lives to it. How much more ought we to be a faithful people upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We who understand truly what it is that our God is our portion, because you have become our portion in Jesus our Lord, in whom we have life, in whom we have the truth of our own human existence. So encourage us and edify us, build us up, Father. Call our hearts and minds back. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're drawing near the end of Hebrews 11 and and the writers kind of cataloging and and tracing out of of this heritage of faith that his own readers uh, very much were a part of, even not just as Christians, but as Israelites, uh, very familiar with 
these men and these stories, these individuals, and what God had done in their own lives. And as I even prayed, the writer's hope was that his readers would draw encouragement and strengthened hope and resolve from those who had gone before. But he ends this chapter with uh, what is kind of a sweeping summary. And, and I wrestled this week with how to handle it. I mean, in one sense, we could just clump it all together and, and, and kind of flesh it out in an organic way. But, but I always wrestle with uh, this thing of, of getting so bogged down in the details that we don't see the forest for the trees uh, or skipping across the surface and not really in any sense doing justice to uh, what the writer, I believe, would hope that his readers would take from his words. So I, I want to break this down into at least two parts, even though, as I said, it is kind of an organic whole. And you'll see this as we read through this. This begins with verse 32 of chapter 11. And what the writer does is he, he kind of summarizes by naming a handful of other uh, individuals in kind of rapid fire uh, manner. And then he talks in just general terms about their work of faith, their lives of faith, the way uh, their, their walk with the Lord played out, both positively and negatively, in terms of their triumphs and in terms of their suffering. All a reflection and, in a sense, a depiction of what it was to be people of faith. So the writer says in verse 32 of Hebrews 11, what more then shall I say? He's already, I think, well established his point, uh, his case for what faith is and what faith looks like and what faith looks to. And he says, what more shall I say? Time will fail me if I were to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, Samuel, and all the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection." And others experienced mockings, scourgings, yes, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. They were people of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In a, in a, uh, a historical sense, the writer has built the case from the creation of how faith has worked beginning with Abel and tracing himself all the way through. And and with Joshua and Rahab, he took us up to the point of the entrance into Canaan and the beginning of that conquest. And with these individuals that he names here, 
and even in a more general sense as he talks about the prophets and these faithful who followed after, he kind of completes out or fills out that salvation history. He begins with several men associated with the judges of Israel, picking up with the conquest of the land of Canaan and following through up to the point of the emergence of the monarchy and then with the prophets taking us all the way through the Old Testament salvation history up to the the time of silence, as it were, that then yielded up the coming of the Messiah himself. And so he's really kind of bounded the whole of creation history from the point of creation up to the coming of the Messiah himself, showing how this principle of faith was operative all along the way. And as I said, he he emphasizes both the negative or the downside of faith, something we don't tend to want to think about, faith and faithfulness, as well as the triumphs associated with faith, and even the way those two things work together. But what I'd like to do today is to simply focus on these first individuals who are associated with the time of the judges and, and I hope that, that you'll see uh, what my, uh, my reasoning is in that, the reason to peel those individuals off. Many have asked and wondered, and there is no definitive answer to it, why would the writer even pick these six men? Now, he speaks of the prophets generically, but why Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel? Why did he decide to even mention those men? Did they just come to mind? If they did come to mind, why did they come to mind? Obviously, he doesn't deal with them personally and in depth. And there isn't an easy answer to that. Uh, I mean, David and Samuel, to me, would be more obvious because they were such significant figures in Israel's history in all sorts of ways, as well as being notable men of faith. But the others, and particularly maybe Jephthah, Barak, why them? I would even, and you don't have to answer out loud, but I would even put the question out there to you all. What do you all know about Jephthah and Barak? Are they notable individuals that we are familiar with? Even we who are familiar with the Old Testament, do we even really know anything about those men? Why would they come to his mind? They're relatively obscure individuals, certainly in terms of our age and our understanding. And Samson is probably the one that we know the best, but we probably know him in more of a notorious way. Because of his hubris, because of his self-seeking, because of his rebellion. Why would the writer pick those men? And we don't know for sure. Some have observed, and and it's a good observation, that specifically of Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, the text says that the Spirit of the Lord came on them. And so the text kind of, in a sense, identifies them as men who God worked with in a very uh, um, uh, intimate sort of way. He gave them his spirit for the sake of the work that he was calling them to. And this is not salvific language. This isn't them being indwelled by the spirit and saved in the New Testament sense. That's not the point. It's the empowerment, the anointing by the spirit for the sake of the work to which God was calling them. Specifically, their work as judges. 
Just as God gave Saul his spirit, the anointing of the kingship to Saul, and then withdrew his spirit. It wasn't Saul was saved, lost his salvation, whatever. It's not that idea. It's the king is ruling in God's name and authority and power with the mind of God. And so he's anointed with the spirit for that purpose. And those three are identified specifically as being anointed with God's spirit. I think another observation is that the accounts of these men in Israel's history, at least, not so much maybe to us, but the accounts of these named men would have been well known to his Israelite audience. And in many ways, their stories have a kind of spectacular quality to them, uh, and perhaps that's what made them come to mind. But what I want to focus on as I've read their accounts and thought about them, I think one of the things that binds them together, and I think it fits even with the larger context, what may have brought them to mind in the writer's thinking as he's finishing up here, is that they were men who God chose to lead Israel, but men whose faithfulness in their ordained task was very much colored by doubt and fear and insecurity, even disobedience and unbelief. And yet, they were men of faith who accomplished their purposes as ordained by God, even in the power of his spirit. So I think their stories would have encouraged these readers who themselves, as we've seen, the whole central idea in the epistle to the Hebrews is a man writing a letter to Jewish Christians who are struggling themselves. Their faith is costing them dearly, costing them perhaps even their lives, but their property, their countrymen, They're even being pressed to question whether in embracing this man Jesus as the Messiah, they have actually abandoned the God of Israel and are following a false way. And we've seen that throughout the epistle. And so to draw on these men again, as he's not just saying, okay, here were men who believe God, let's move on. But he's hoping his intention in, in even drawing out this whole section on faith is how it is that faith triumphs in the struggles of life. How it is that faith is the way in which we triumph in all of the challenges that we face, including our own personal challenges of weakness, insecurity, doubt, fear. And I think the way the writer even listed these individuals supports that kind of perspective because he doesn't treat them the way he did the others. He just kind of names them in rapid fashion. Up to this point, he's traced out all of the individuals he's dealt with chronologically. He's moved from Abel to Rahab. And they've all been in order. Not just biblical order, but historical order. Now he names these six individuals, and they're not in order. If you know the way in which they actually, when they lived, what they did, he's not naming them in order. He's just naming them. He's treating them collectively. Whatever his point is, I think that way of, of binding them together says that he's treating them in a collective sense. They're to be viewed together. 
And as I said, together, when you read their accounts, they were men who faced great adversity, great opposition, but ultimately through the discipline of their enacted faith, their faith walked out, they ended up fulfilling, accomplishing God's purposes for them, in that way glorifying the God of Israel. So together, that that was their kind of common lot, and yet they also walked that out as individuals. Each one of them was faithful in his own time. The writer treats them together, but not as if their individual lives and calling and faithfulness don't matter. They very much do matter. They were bound together in a common way, a common lot, but each one walked out his faithfulness and met his struggles and challenges himself in his own time, in his own circumstances. And that's an important point that we don't want to lose sight of. Yes, we are in a sense a part of a vast assembly of God's faithful surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. But we all, even as we come to chapter 12, we all as individuals have to run our race with endurance. We can't say, you do it for me. I'll ride on your coattails. We all have to walk out our faithfulness with the Lord in the context of our own struggles, our own difficulties, our own calling. Yes, we are a part of a vast assembly, but as individuals. Yes, the meaning of the parts is in the whole, but the parts are important. The parts are important. So the author lists them as as a collective by just kind of putting them together in a group and not in in the actual order in which they occurred. But I think you see that also in the way that he treats their faithfulness. He doesn't do what he did with all the other people where he said, here is Abraham, here is his faith, here's this person, here's his faith, here's this person, here's his faith and faithfulness. He lumps them all together and then he gives just a kind of holistic, uh, bundled together description of their faithfulness. They conquered kingdoms, performed righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, etc. He doesn't attach any of those descriptors or works of faithfulness to any particular one. And I think his readers, very familiar with their own scriptures and and the Israelite history, would have, in a sense, been able to attach these particular things to certain individuals some of which we may be able to do ourselves. But the point is, is that he's treating their works of faithfulness, their enacted faithfulness, in a kind of collective way. Well, with the exception then of Barak and David, the other men that are named here were judges in Israel. And if you're familiar with that period in Israel, The judges were God's appointed rulers, his appointed leaders, during the time of Israel's possession of the land of Canaan, after the death of Joshua, until the beginning of the monarchy with Saul. Saul was the first king in Israel. But before there was a king in Israel, and even when there was a human king, that king, as I said, was God's anointed son who represented the Lord's 
kingship and reign. Yahweh was king in Israel. Thus the scripture describes Solomon sitting on Yahweh's throne in Israel. But before there were human kings, Yahweh was king in a way where there was no human representative. And the way in which God carried out his rule, his lordship over the sons of Israel was through men that he would raise up from time to time. But there was an important context for that, and we we read this, not surprisingly, in the book of Judges. Hopefully you're familiar with that book. But the book of Judges uh, tells the story of that period of Israel's history. And these men that God raised up, that that, um, ordination of God and their function was in a very important situational context, circumstantial context. In a way, the book of Judges says more than once as a kind of theme for that time. Now, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. A kind of summary of what life for the covenant household was like during that time. No king in Israel. And It's a kind of play in the sense that, yes, there was no human king, but even God's kingship was in question. How so? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so the book of Judges recounts that time, and and kind of at the center of it is this cyclical pattern that you see happening over and over and over again, a cycle I think it's seven cycles, some reckon it differently, but the cycle consists of, and this is a cycle in the people's relationship with God, a time of complacency that moves towards rebellion and disregard, defiance, ultimately apostasy, a significant departure from God such that God then brings retribution in the form of powers outside of Israel, either inside of the land or coming from outside the land, to oppress them and afflict them and subjugate them. And that period of affliction and subjugation goes on for a certain amount of time And as the people cry out to God to come and to rescue them and to deliver them from their affliction, God raises up a deliverer. And those individuals are the judges. God raises up someone, a man of war, a person of war, to rally and rise up against the oppressing power to deliver God's people from that power and, in a sense, restore their relationship with God, restore the the covenant relationship between God and Israel. And so the judges functioned as military leaders, civil leaders, and in a certain sense, even religious leaders. The last of the judges was Samuel, And Samuel was the hinge. He was the point of transition. As you know, he was the one who anointed Saul. He was the one who anointed David. Samuel was the last of the judges. And that period ran for about three and a half centuries. 
from, again, the time of the death of Joshua, when Israel had essentially conquered the land, although there were still, you know, pockets of, of enmity and other, you know, powers, Canaanite powers, other powers that were still operative in the land. Jerusalem wasn't finally conquered till David. So there was always, you know, a certain amount of hostility present. But that's what you see in, in the book of, of Judges. And the thing that made for the cycles was that once a judge was raised up, these were strong enough individuals that the people would largely return in a, in a manner of faithfulness back to Yahweh. But when the judge would die, then the pattern would start over again. As long as the people had a strong leader, they tended to stay on track with the Lord. But as soon as that leader died, then things began to go south again. So you see this in chapter 2. We'll just read a few verses here. This is kind of the summary of the period uh, that is given at the beginning of the book. Chapter 2, verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Gods of Canaan, they forsook Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. They bowed themselves to them, and they provoked Yahweh to anger. They forsook him. They served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies." Wherever they went, the hand of Yahweh was against them for evil, as he had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so they were severely distressed. And then Yahweh raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. But they did not listen to their judges. They played the harlot after other gods, bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord." And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, it came about that they would turn back and act more corruptly even than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways." That's a summary of the whole period of the judges. So these first men that the writer of Hebrews mentions in kind of summing up this thing of faith and faithfulness, those men existed and manifested, lived out their faithfulness in this context, this context of the judges. So I'd like to then look today at Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. I'm going to peel off Samuel, even though he was the last of the judges, and deal with him separately. But deal with these four men because, again, they can kind of be treated very tightly together. Gideon, his story is in Judges 6 through 8, and we'll be reading little bits and pieces of this. But he was the fifth judge among the judges, and God raised him up to deliver Israel from the Midianites. Now, if you know Midian and the Midianites, they played a significant role in Israel's history all along the way. Midian was one of the sons of Keturah, Abraham's second wife. She had six sons. Midian was one of them. 
and he became a tribe. Moses married a Midianite, right? His father-in-law Jethro was a Midianite. They largely uh, were a tribe that populated the Transjordan area kind of at the north end of the Arabian Peninsula, but on the east side of the Jordan River. And what's significant about this here is that the Midianites had kind of collaborated or conspired together um, with, with the Moabites. Remember the story in Numbers with Balaam? When the Israelites are in the plains of Moab and Balaam, uh, Balak, the king of Moab, petitions Balaam to curse the people. You know that story, and he ends up not being able to curse the people. But when that fails, Balaam, together with uh, the Midianites, conspire together to seduce the Israelites away from Yahweh, uh, largely with Midianite women. And there's that episode with the Midianite woman, Cosby, where where you know the faithful priest sticks the spear through both of them, if you remember that story. But God had then commissioned Moses to take his army and destroy the entire Midianite people. And Moses had done that. But now time has passed and Midian has kind of, in a sense, reconstituted itself and is seeking revenge. And so what Midian has done, for seven years they've afflicted Israel by coming in at harvest time, coming in at the right times and seizing the harvest, devastating the fields, seizing the grain, seizing the livestock, killing, even driving the people. The text says that the people were forced to live in caves in the hills, the people of Israel. They were driven from their homes. Their land was devastated. Their, their crops, their animals, all of that was devastated. The Midianites were grinding them into powder. And it's in that context that God raises up Gideon. Gideon is descended from an insignificant family. He's, he's of the tribe of Manasseh. Remember, Manasseh was made second to Ephraim as the sons of Joseph. Manasseh was itself kind of an insignificant tribe. And the text says that Gideon was of a family, a insignificant family within that insignificant tribe. And on top of that, he was the youngest son, which made him the least significant son in the household. And even more than that, his family were idolaters. His father had an altar to Baal and and an Asherah totem. And the the indication in the text is that all of the people of that city were worshippers of Baal and Asherah, the gods of the Canaanites. That's the unlikely man that God raises up to deliver his people. And the first thing that he has Gideon do, which is itself a challenge of faith, is God tells him, destroy your father's altar, tear down the Asherah, use the Asherah wood to to burn for a burnt offering. And he does it at night, in the dark of night, because he knows the men of the city will be outraged, his father will be outraged, and so will the men of the city. So he does it in a kind of secretive way. 
But the first thing God does is say, deal with the idolatry of your family in, your, in the city that you live in. And then he raises him up and sends him out against the Midianites. But God constrains the number of fighting men that he can take. Remember, he keeps winnowing it down. And you see in Gideon a kind of fearfulness. He keeps putting, you know, putting a fleece out there. God, let me know that this is really you. Can, can I give you, cause this to happen? If I can ask you one more thing, just one more time, show me. You know, he's, un, he, he's, he's doubting, he's uncertain. This is a big task. And yet in the end, this man with a handful of men, 300 men, prevails against the Midianite army. But he's a nobody from what would seem the last kind of family that God would raise up a judge from, a deliverer. And he's insecure. He's the youngest. Barak, the second individual, and I'm just highlighting some things here, he wasn't even really a judge. He was a companion of Deborah, who was a judge. Interestingly, one of the judges was a female. Those who think that the God of Israel was misogynistic, uh, she was a judge and a prophet. But Barak was, uh, he comes into the picture as an associate of hers. God sends Deborah to commission him to raise an army and to go and fight the Canaanites, a group of Canaanites that, again, have been oppressing Israel because of their unfaithfulness. They're, they're God's instrument against them. When the people cry out, then God raises someone up. Deborah is the judge. She's a female. God says, go and commission this man, Barak, to raise an army and to be my deliverer. And Barak says, I'm not going to do it unless you go with me to Deborah. And she says, okay, I'll go with you, but you're not going to get the honor. You're going to be humiliated in the sense that when God gives this victory, the honor will go to a woman and not to you. To have the honor of a victory in a massive battle like that go to a female was an unheard of thing. Women wouldn't even be on the battlefield, really. So he says, I'll do it, I'll do it, only if you go with me, and she says, I will, but just know that the honor is going to come to me and not to you. And, but even though he's hesitant, even though he's unwilling to obey God without having her by his side, as a kind of, you know, someone that he, he thinks he can depend on, he nonetheless does go out to battle and he engages with her, Deborah, the Canaanites with only 10,000 men, and God gives them a great victory. And you see in chapter 5 of Judges this song of celebration, this song of exultation, of triumph, the, the song of Deborah and Barak, the song of triumph. But another man who was weak and insecure and would only obey God if this female judge went out with him. The third individual, Samuel or Samson, rather, is the, the text probably gives more attention to him than to any of the judges other than 
Samuel himself because of, of the significance of Samuel. But Samson came at the very end. The next judge after him was Samuel. He's at the very end of that period. Samson was uniquely distinguished from birth. Unlike, say, Gideon, who came from an ignoble family or whatever, you see the echoes of, that even point forward to the Messiah in Samson, in that, and, and even to Samuel himself, in that Samson's mother was barren. And through a visitation, God says, you're going to have a son. But he's to be set apart to me from birth. He's to be a Nazarite. The Nazarite vow was ordained under the law, but it was a vow of total consecration. And it was marked by the fact that you would not drink wine, touch anything unclean, a a very limited, what would come to you and enter into you was very limited and also you would never cut your hair. But it was devised as a period of time vow. You would be a Nazarite for a time for a certain purpose and then at the end of that time then the vow would end and you would cut your hair and burn your hair you know, in an offering but then you would go back to your normal status. The three men that the text seems to indicate were Nazarites throughout their life. First, Samson, he will be a Nazarite all of his days, and then Samuel himself. And you see that in the way Hannah, his mother, in her prayer, Lord, if you will give me a son, then I will devote him to you all his days. A razor will never touch his head. It's the Nazarite idea. And then the other one that's indicated as being a Nazarite uh, in terms of that dedication to the Lord from his mother's womb is John the Baptist. I think probably the New Testament indicates that Paul himself took a Nazarite vow at one point. Could you read in the book of Acts where um, when he came to Chantria, he cut his hair because of a vow that he had taken? if you remember that, and there's not a lot of commentary on it, but he had probably entered into a Nazarite vow as it was given in the law for a certain period of time for a certain function. But Samson was a Nazarite, and, his, and he was to be a Nazarite from the moment of his conception. And the point of that consecration was that Samson was God's ordained instrument to initiate the liberation of Israel from the yoke of the Philistines, the five kings of the Philistines. The Philistine kingdom was on the Mediterranean coast near the south. You had the five kings. You had Gaza, Gath, Ekron, Eglon, uh, Ashdod, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron. Anyway, five of them. (laughs) Gath, Goliath the Philistine was Goliath of Gath, right? Gath, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron. There are the five, five kings. But the Philistines were a very powerful entity. And really that particular destruction of the Philistines or the overthrow of their authority didn't happen until Samuel came along. But God raised up Samson to initiate that. He will be the beginning of my 
liberation of my people from the yoke of the Philistines. So Samson was holy to the Lord, but the text records that as soon as he's coming of age, he's already kind of charting his own course. His entire life was to be utterly devoted to the Lord, and he was to be the one who would overthrow the yoke of the Philistines. Instead, he wants to yoke himself to a Philistine wife. You read the... His story is in in 13 through 16, but if you look in Judges 14, the very beginning, it says, Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines, and he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines, now therefore get her for me as a wife. And his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your own relatives or your people that you would go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She looks good to me. I want her. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of Yahweh, for Yahweh was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. And it's an important point because Samson's life from this point forward is characterized by all kinds of folly and bad decisions and weaknesses. He's got a weakness for women. He's got a weakness. He's he's very self-serving. He's very self-preoccupied. And yet through all of that is the working out of the purpose of God that he will, in fact, begin this overthrow of the Philistine power. He had his own designs, Samson. He was going to live his life the way he wanted. He was going to pursue the things he was interested in, but Yahweh's will would prevail. And so you see with Samson that his self-seeking cost him dearly, and yet his Nazarite consecration was not thwarted or or, um, in, in any way nullified. He did fulfill his calling, but not as the mighty warrior that you see him as through most of his life, but as the broken, weak, impotent man whom God empowers at the last minute. And if you read the story, you see how that works. He marries this, this woman, but, but, but even in their marriage feast, he gets upset with her because she divulges his secret, his little riddle. So he leaves, and, he, he, and then when he goes back later to get her, she's been given to another man. But he just keeps, through all this, he keeps raging against the Philistines. But not because he's serving God, but because he's upset that things aren't going the way he wants. And he's strong enough that he can toy with these people and draw them in and take them out. He ends up falling in love with another Philistine woman named Delilah. And she's offered by the five kings of the Philistines, each one's going to give her 1,100 pieces of silver. That's a ton of dough. If she will find out what the secret of his strength is, and we all know the story, right? He toys with her and he says, well, it's if I'm tied with these cords. And then he breaks them and kills a bunch of people, right, when they come to get him. And then he does it again. And, then he, and finally, he, he divulges to her. She says, oh, if you really love me, you would tell me the truth. How can you say you love me? 
And he says, okay. So he tells her the truth. And while he's sleeping, you know, she cuts off his hair. Then they come in and they grab him, you know. But then they blind him, they gouge out his eyes, and they chain him up, and they turn him into a laughingstock. And when they're having a big feast to Dagon, the Philistine god, they have him chained up between two pillars in this, this massive temple meeting place, gathering place. And he cries out to God and he says, God, if you'll just make me strong one more time. And he pulls this down. That's it. He dies together with all these Philistines. And he kills more of them in his own death than he did through all those years when he was kept going out and, and you know, wiping them out bits and pieces at a time. So he ends up fulfilling that calling, that Nazarite ordination and consecration, but not as a warrior, not as a mighty man, as a broken man drawing on the strength of God. And then the last individual that I want to look at today is this man, Jephthah. And you may not even know who he is or have any idea anything about him. He was the eighth of the judges, and I would say arguably the least likely choice that God would raise up for a judge. He delivered, the the, the deliverance that he brought, the people that he brought deliverance uh, against to Israel, the people that he rose up against were the Ammonites. But the thing that if people know Jephthah, the thing that he's the most known for is the vow that he made and its outcome. When he was told to go against the Ammonites, he said, God, if you will give me the victory... Then when I return from the conquest, the first thing that comes out of my house, I will offer to you in a burnt offering. Kind of seems like a strange vow. But he wins the battle, and when he comes back, the one who first comes through his door is his daughter. Not just his daughter, his only child. But he doesn't say, I changed my mind, God, let me off the hook. And even when he, you know, in this great lamentation, shares with his daughter what he's done, she says, let it be unto me. You know, as you vowed to the Lord, this vow must be paid. Now, it's a troubling passage because a lot of people say, wow, he sacrificed his own daughter. He, you know, he killed her, offered her as a burnt offering. I think really the text indicates that he actually offered her in the sense of a perpetual consecration from that point forward. Number one, under Israel's law, the law of Moses, you, you didn't sacrifice human beings, but even the idea of the burnt offering, the Hebrew concept of cholah, it's not the burning or the killing of something. It's the idea of that which is brought up and given to the Lord entirely. The burning and the killing part are really kind of secondary. The issue with the cholah is that which is carried up and lifted up and, and presented to God. It speaks of an entire consecration. That was the reason even for burning the offering, there was nothing left. It was all consumed as an act of worship to the Lord. The other thing that is a hint in that regard is that she says to her father, if you would, before you fulfill the vow, can you give me two months to go to the mountains to lament my virginity? 
And you say, well, that's kind of a strange thing. I mean, if she's going to be put to death, why does she care that, that she's young and doesn't have a husband or whatever? But if it really is the idea of she's now going to be consecrated to the Lord to serve him, she will never have a husband or children, then the lament makes sense. Then it makes sense. And even if you look at this account, uh, Jephthah's in, in chapters 11 and 12 of Judges. If you look at the end of chapter 11, the way this is recounted, He said, go, and he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. And it came about at the end of two months that she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow. He kept the vow, and she had no relations with the man. The way it's summarized indicates that that was the way in which he fulfilled the vow. But nonetheless, he did give up his daughter because of this vow. And thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel would go yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. A commemoration of her own yielding to her father and to the vow that was made. So with Jephthah, the issue of, of the faith, his faith is uncertain. What is it that the writer of Hebrews is really getting at? I mean, obviously, he did win that, that battle against the Ammonites, but it was also an act of faith, in a sense, in offering his daughter. And we don't really know, but again, he seems like an unlikely choice in that regard. But just to close this off today, again, in, when you look at the accounts of these men and how they carried out their calling and how they uh, you know, functioned even as God's judges, leaders, rulers, uh, in, um, kind of leaders of faith in the people of Israel, all of these men were deeply flawed. Even the great heroes beyond these men, but the great heroes that we point to, Abraham or David, even Samuel we're going to see, all of these men were deeply flawed. And that shouldn't rock our boat. It should actually encourage us. When the Hebrews writer says that we should draw, his readers should draw an encouragement and even come to understand faith through the lives of these deeply flawed individuals, it should be a great encouragement. God is not looking for perfect people. If God's purposes for the world bound up in Abraham, dependent on Abraham, they would have ended the minute that he handed over Sarah to Abimelech out of fear for himself. Knowing that she was going to bear the covenant heir, he handed her over to a pagan king to go into his harem. And God had to intervene. If it were up to each of the patriarchs, it would have ended in their generation. If it were up to David, if it were up to Samuel, if it were up to any of these individuals. They were flawed men, flawed these men, even in the way in which they carried out their calling. Think of Samson. Samson fulfilled his Nazarite consecration 
in a life of behavior that looked like anything but that Nazarite consecration. And I'm not saying that God says, go ahead and do whatever you want because I'll end up fulfilling my purposes anyway. But the point is, again, is that it doesn't depend on us. Samson did what he did for his own reasons. He, in many ways, despised his vow. He despised the empowering that God had given to him. The strength that he had, the super, he used it to his own advantage. He used it for his own reasons. And yet, his calling was fulfilled. And I think that's the writer's point in mentioning these judges. He's trying to encourage his readers to persevere in faith. They are struggling with the same challenges of weakness, fear, doubt, unbelief. There's no better way to encourage them than to highlight the triumphal faith of weak and flawed men. And these were largely men that they, as Jews, in the history of Judaism and its own sense of itself and its scriptures, these were men that the Jews celebrated, and yet they were deeply flawed men. All of them triumph, not because of anything in themselves, but because God is faithful to his purposes. Paul draws out this idea all the time. Let every man be a liar. God is true. Even if we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. God is faithful to his purposes. Always. And he is faithful and and unrelenting in the working of his power in people as his chosen instruments. Whether they know it, whether they like it, whether they're faithful or not. And as far as these readers are concerned and as far as we're concerned, that God who was faithful through the period of the judges, a time when Israel could not get its act together at all. There was no king in Israel. Yahweh wasn't even king. He remained faithful. He remembered his covenant. That idea of loving kindness is chesed, covenant faithfulness. God will not relent. Let every man be a liar, he is true. And through that whole period, even the men that he raised up to carry it forward were themselves deeply flawed. They were men of their own times. They were a part of this unfaithful generation, 350-some years. And even when Saul is made king, he's a disaster. And David, in his own way, when he was made king, was a disaster, And the kings after David were disasters. And it kept carrying along the promise that someday God would raise up one from Israel in whom Israel would become Israel, who would be faithful son, servant, disciple, witness, who would love the Lord with heart, soul, mind, and strength, who would be Yahweh's faithful servant on behalf of Israel and on behalf of the nations. And the point is that these Hebrew readers, and we as well, we recognize that that God who had been faithful all the way along has now brought his faithfulness to its full realization in Jesus the Messiah. 
He is the one who is now carrying out the testimony of God, the rule of God, the leadership of God, the ministration of God, and God's faithful work in the world. He's the one who is carrying that out through vessels that are weak and frail and flawed. And yet God's purposes will not be thwarted. He will fulfill his design to sum up everything in the heavens and the earth in Jesus our Lord. It doesn't depend on us, but in many ways it does. I say to people all the time, this is something, the only thing where 100% and 100% equals 100%. Because God works through our flaws and our failures, but that's still our flaws and our failures, right? We don't sit under a tree and say, God, do whatever you're going to do. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling with the confidence that it's God who's at work in us to will and to work. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to say, starting the very next chapter, having such a cloud of witnesses, you throw off the things that weigh you down. You throw off the things that entangle you and trip you up. And you run with endurance your race, the one that's marked out for you. You have to run your own race. But how do you do that? You do that locking your gaze on Jesus, who's the author and finisher of faith. And so my questions to us today are are just two How do we judge this thing of faithfulness? Do we judge it in an ideal way? Do we judge it in in a theoretical way? What does it mean if we ask ourselves, are we faithful people? What does that look like? How would we know? How would we answer that question? What does it really look like to be faithful? In the context of our human existence, in the context of our challenges, our weaknesses, our failures, our doubts, our fears, our flaws. What does it really look like to be faithful? What do we think is going to be required for us on that day to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant? It's an important question because we want to be faithful people, right? And the second piece of this, and this kind of leads us into uh, where we're going to be going next uh, in this section, finishing out chapter 11, What does it look like for us to triumph in faith? Is it to soar above the fray like hinds feet on high places? Is it to bring great works of deliverance and achievement and accomplishment? It's kind of the second side of this thing of how do we know what does faithfulness look like and what is the fruit of faithfulness that is triumph in Messiah Jesus? What does that look like? And I would say it looks like the triumph of the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah, and his triumph did not look like triumph, did it? not from a certain vantage point. What does it look like to triumph? What does it look like to be faithful people? There's a pastor probably 25 years ago who wrote a book, and I think a very important book called 
I think it's called overcoming the success syndrome. And he dealt with his own struggles. It was R. Kent Hughes, I think. And he dealt with his own struggles of what he had been taught life in the church was going to be like, what he had been taught ministry was going to look like, what he had been taught success in ministry would look like and how it would be achieved. And he became so disillusioned and discouraged because it wasn't at all what he thought it was going to be. And he never doubted himself or his gifts. He doubted God's faithfulness. He had to rethink, what is it to be faithful? What is it to triumph as God sees triumph? Father, we are weak people. We are flawed people. We are people who struggle in many ways. And yet, as Paul said, and I pray that it is something that encourages us, we can say thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ Jesus. Paul knew what it was to have doubts and fears and insecurities and have the threat of death hanging on his his mind and his heart. To be pressed on every side a messenger of Satan to buffet him and to fill his mind with all kinds of things that distracted and confused and discouraged and disheartened him. Paul knew what it was to suffer heavily as he labored to be a faithful man. And he could say, thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph. We are those who are led in your triumph, Father, and I pray that that's enough for us. Not that it would allow us to give ourselves ease and say, oh, it doesn't matter what I do or how I live or how I apply myself. I can be indolent and lazy and irresponsible and and unconcerned. No, it should actually be quite the opposite. We are set free from the burden of performance to completely yield ourselves to our God and his triumph in Messiah Jesus. We are free to be who we are in Christ. And that's not only enough, it is all that there is. And we know, Father, that you perfect sonship through the things that we suffer. It was true of Jesus our Lord. How much more is it true of us? You don't call us to be victorious people in that sense that we overcome all obstacles. You call us to rest in the God who is our portion, to find our victory in the triumph of Jesus. Our victory is our share in his victory. Our resurrection is our share in his resurrection. He is our triumph. We don't have to get everything right. We need to love our God. We need to walk before you in humility and dependence and gratitude. In a very real way, we need to get over ourselves so that we can become who you have created us to be in Christ Jesus. And we can truly pursue this destiny that you've appointed for us. So, Father, help us to be encouraged in these things. 
Help us to not make more of ourselves than we ought, either in our sense of accomplishment or our sense of failure. Help us to rightly get over ourselves and make much of the Lord who is the author and the perfecter of faith, that he would be exalted in us and through us, in the church and in the world. To him be all glory, honor, praise, and dominion in this age and in the age to come. Amen.